This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. In April 2014, David Bromwich spoke about his forthcoming book, The Intellectual Life of Edmund Burke, From the Sublime and Beautiful to American Independence. Bromwich is a professor of English at Yale University and the author of studies of Hazlitt and Wordsworth. While Edmund Burke is commonly seen as the father of modern conservatism, Bromwich argues that he was a more subtle and interesting thinker. Burke defended the rights of disenfranchised minorities, protested against the cruelties of English society, and agitated for peace with America. Now, without further ado, I'm really pleased to welcome our speaker today, David Bromwich. He's contributed frequently to the New York Review of Books, to the London Review of Books, and to many other periodicals. Today, he's going to be talking about the book that has just come out, The Intellectual Life of Edmund Burke, From the Sublime and Beautiful to American Independence. I did want to mention there's also a collection of his essays that Princeton University Press is publishing titled Moral Imagination Essays, and this is coming out, I think, in the next next couple of weeks, so you should keep your eyes open for that. But without further ado, I'm very happy to welcome from Yale University, David Bromwich. Thank you for that introduction and for the invitation. I was part of this group in the late 80s and always enjoyed it, but didn't get enough chances to come down once I moved from Princeton to New Haven. So uh, I won't say it's quite a homecoming, but it's nice to be here again. What I'm going to say in the next half hour or so will be just to sketch Burke's career and especially his early career. I'll stop before his campaign to reform British India and his almost personal campaign to stop the French Revolution, but say a word looking forward to those developments and to intimate what his, the shape of his early intellectual life may tell us about those later commitments, which on the whole are more famous now than the things that made his reputation in the 1770s and early 1780s. The greatest of Burke scholars, I suppose the greatest ever, Thomas Copeland, who was the general editor of the 10-volume correspondence of Edmund Burke, said in a letter to a friend at Yale, which is in the Yale archives now, and I got to it by chance, that it's the hardest thing in the world to get the simple facts about Burke, what's plain and true about him, partly because he covered his tracks quite a lot during his life, but also because people who write about Burke tend to be wanting to pump up some theory about him, and they use just the facts that they need. Let me give a rapid sketch so that we're on the same footing in conversation that may follow. Burke was born in 1730 
from a professional, what to say, his father is a high-ranked country attorney in the way of barrister rather than solicitor. It is disputed whether the family were compelled to conceal strong Catholic beliefs by oaths of allegiance you had to take at that time. On the whole, I think not. It seems to me that Burke was a believing but not strenuously committed Christian all his life who followed the observances of the Church of England because it was part of a social order that he admired in general. This is already my first digression, but it's an interesting short passage from a letter he writes in the 1780s when asked about Christianity. He says, I am a Christian much from conviction, more from affection. Interesting statement. So he's brought up in this mixed family where the boys have to be Protestant, but the girls and the mother are allowed to remain Catholic. That's for purposes of inheriting property. And goes to a Quaker academy at the age of 12, led by a teacher named Abraham Shackleton, who trained Burke in Greek, Latin, and the things you ought to know at that time by the age of 15. Burke was a good enough classicist by the time he started Trinity College, Dublin, in 1744 to be reading writers like Tacitus and Homer pretty much for pleasure rather than study. He graduates at the age of 18 from college and makes his way to London where he is expected by his father, with whom his relations were never happy, to enter into the study of law at the Middle Temple in London. He spends a year plus at that and then quits law and the period of Burke's life from roughly 1750 to 1756 is pretty obscure, called by a slightly melodramatic but not unreliable biographer Dixon Wechter, the hidden years, the missing years. And yet during this time, it seems that Burke is coming to be known by the leading lights of literary society in London, including David Garrick, Samuel Johnson, and even David Hume, in his occasional forays into London. We know that because when Hume had five copies of his friend Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments to distribute to important personages who could help prepare a reception for the book, Burke was one of them. Another was the Duke of Argyle. <laughs> so you get an impression of the company he was making his way into and how it happened exactly isn't clear, but he came from pretty elite and lucky beginnings after all. There is a phrase in the Reflections on the Revolution in France that I think people always get wrong, where Burke says that we owe our first loyalty to the subdivision to which we are attached, the little platoon we belong to in society. This is used a lot as a kind of communitarian slogan, both on the left, the sentimental left, and the always sentimental and religious right. And it's not, it seems to me, a reference to community or the feeling of a neighborhood. He's actually talking about his class or caste or sect in society, probably educated Irish professionals that he kept company with in London. He publishes in 1756 anonymously a satire on the theory of human nature as originally innocent and apt to be guided into paths of reason and utopian perfection, if only the shackles of superstition 
and uh, subordination and coercion were removed. It's a satire, but it's a very peculiar satire because a lot of the description of suffering and the miseries of the poor, for example, that you find in this book of Vindication of Natural Society are so true that it's hard not to be moved by them. And one of the paradoxes of Burke's career, and you find this again and again going in both directions, Burke the reactionary influencing people in the direction of radicalism and Burke the radical influencing people in the other direction, is that this book was read by, among others, Thomas Paine, William Godwin, and they took it to be an exposure of the real corruptions of 18th century British aristocratic society. Burke had to write a preface to a later edition of it saying just what his intentions were, the speaker was not himself, and so on. But that's an interesting problem about interpretation. It you know, comes at us if we're writing criticism now of a writer like Swift as well as Burke, and he has something in common with Swift. The difference is Burke is a practical politician, and when he throws out his paradoxes, the effects are going to make their way into actual life. In 1759, he publishes the philosophical inquiry the origins of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful. 18th century titles are long, but I like this one very much. Every word in it counts. And in a way, if you commit to memory the title, you know a lot of what is and isn't in Burke's argument. A philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and beautiful. And one of the tenets of his theory of the sublime is that it exists only in the mind, only as idea. But it's an idea related to the experience or the apprehension of fear, most of all, not of something grand, ethereal, and dematerialized. And that's a difference of more than a shade between Burke's idea of the sublime and that of Kant, who is deeply influenced by Burke, but takes the theory in quite a different direction in his Critique of Judgment 30 years later or so. From 1761 to 1765, Burke was the secretary, the private secretary of William Gerard Hamilton, a gifted but for Burke difficult patron whom he accompanied to Dublin when Hamilton became a secretary to the Lord Lieutenant there, a, a sort of sub-cabinet position, but of some distinction. And Burke had a view of Ireland, as it were, from outside. His, his returns to Ireland are infrequent, as when he's elected to a constituency anywhere in England, his trips to the constituency are very infrequent. He seems to see himself almost from his early 30s as a figure who doesn't belong to a place, but whose vocation is the improvement of prospects for humankind. And that's an emphasis I insist on in this book, which Harvard has gotten out so beautifully, but I think is probably still controversial, that Burke, on the whole, almost until his very last years, and even then with some reservations, is a believer in progress and fits our idea of a partisan of what we now call, with whatever bias and partiality, the Enlightenment. He belongs to that movement as much as a writer like David Hume, as much as Kant, neither of whom would have felt that Burke was not of their company. In 1765, Burke breaks off relations with Hamilton on the ground that Hamilton won't let him pursue his literary work and other people in his generation are moving ahead of him because they have greater freedom, but finds a much more agreeable and encouraging patron, the Marcus of Rockingham, whose estates amount to 15,000 acres in Yorkshire. Rockingham is a great man, but a man almost without 
about parliamentary or political ambitions, unlike Hamilton, and this was one source of friction between Hamilton and Burke. Hamilton had made a great maiden speech in Parliament and later wrote a book called Parliamentary Logic about rhetoric, which is fascinating, and some of which I quote, because I think you're getting Burke's wisdom about the on-the-floor tactics of a parliamentarian as much as you're getting Hamilton's. But he was nicknamed ever after Single Speech Hamilton. <laughs> no explanation needed. Whereas Rockingham could barely be goaded into speaking. He was very diffident, very backward. He's an aristocrat. He loved horse racing. And for the aristocratic grandees of that party, the Bedford clan, and others, politics was local. They considered the king their social and political inferior, and they would move on Parliament when they thought it necessary. George III had other ideas and wanted to restore what he felt to be a lost dignity to the monarchy and to the monarchical branch of the mixed constitutional government. And this is a leading source of tension between George III who becomes a king just out of his teens between George III and Burke's party, the Rockingham Whigs. They took their stand on the repeal of the Stamp Act as a coercive gesture toward the Americans, which was producing unnecessary friction between the mother country and the colonies. And they obtained the appeal of the Stamp Act, but it wasn't the cure-all against American resentment that they had hoped it would be. And that is one of only two periods, very short both, in which Burke's party was in power, was the government. The other occurs in 1782-83, after the American War, before it and after it. During the war, Burke is a leader of opposition. And it's sometimes said that Burke took the American side in the American War, but that's not quite true. He opposed the British attempt to enforce the will of the empire by arms. He was, as he says later, a hater of all violence and innovation. It's such an interesting and characteristic phrase. One of the implications of it is that there is a kind of violence in innovation, innovation being defined here as rapid and sweeping change. So Burke's stance generally as a reformer is that reform means the gradual repair of society and the pushing back against abuses of power. And really the great change that comes over him from the early 70s to the late 80s, if you want to map it from his circumstantial defense of Wilkes against the government prosecution of Wilkes and the use of general warrants to hunt down documents in Wilkes's house that would be of use against him. That episode gives us our Fourth Amendment. You know, general warrants. You can go look for whatever you can find, vacuum it up. The government had used that against Wilkes in 1763. It's an early, interesting, and rather well-framed stand in favor of civil liberties that Burke takes then. But if you want to map it from the early 70s to the late 80s, what most changes in Burke is the internationalization of his interest in the reform of injustice. And there is a statement, I think, that typifies the best of him as much as any sentence could from his speech on Fox's East India Bill for the reform of the company by putting it under control of Parliament, 1783, in which Burke says, it is an arduous thing to plead against 
abuses of a power which originates from your own country and affects people whom we are used to consider as strangers. Um, it is an arduous thing to plead against abuses of a power which originates from your own country and affects people we are used to consider as strangers. That, I think, is what he took to be his role, both in defending the American colonists and much more abused, subordinated people, the Indians suffering under the rule of the East India Company in Bengal. He called the East India Company, with his gift for epigram, a state in the disguise of a merchant. <laughs> Again, Burke's often grouped with Hume as a defender of commerce, free trade, and, you know, the good softening influences of improvement and modernization, but I think that sentence tells you how he differs from Hume. He is not so faithful a believer in commerce as having good effects by its very nature. There's absolutely nothing metaphysical about Burke. He wants to look at a social question, at a standing abuse, and see what is it composed of, what are the motives of the people who are using power in this way, how can things be made less unjust. I guess I would stick with that last phrase because it came to me late as a way of distinguishing Burke from other political reformers, almost all the campaigns that he is famous for, right down to his opposition to the French Revolution and wanting to launch a counter-revolutionary war against it, are in their nature negative. He's not a worker up of schemes for improvement for their own sake, almost never. It is opposition to what he sees as a dangerous abuse by putting power in too few hands or too much power in one place. Let me just go to some quotations, and then I'll stop. On the theory of the sublime, Burke connects the thrill and encounter with power that constitutes such an experience. In nature, above all, but the arts being considered part of nature, the arts can emulate these effects. He traces it to a gap between what we might like to know through curiosity and what we can't know from the nature of a cause so great that it's overwhelming and evades our quest for knowledge. If you can begin to think of that over against the more idealizing descriptions of what is the sublime, you have a beginning of an understanding of what to me really adds up to Burke's originality. There is a couple of sentences in The Sublime and Beautiful that capture this idea of the sublime, where he says, it is our ignorance of things that causes all our admiration. And admiration has the sense, that early English sense of sheer wonder, marvel, on the verge of sublime awe. It is our ignorance of things that causes all our admiration and chiefly excites our passions. Knowledge and acquaintance make the most striking causes affect but little. So see the, the most disturbing, wrenching moments in, oh, say, a movie that has shocked and amazed you. See them for the 10th time and they're not sublime in the same way. You're formalizing your knowledge of them. You're turning into, if you will, a connoisseur and a critic, but you're parting from the originality of the emotion. Knowledge and acquaintance make the most striking causes affect but little. And then this, it is thus with the vulgar, with this, with the, with the crowd, with the herd, with ordinary unlettered people. It is thus with the vulgar, and all men are as the vulgar in what they do not understand. So this is about the limits of understanding, 
and how much our experience at the edge of the greatest excitements that art wants to bring us close to has to do not with knowledge, but with ignorance. It's a striking emphasis. I don't know that any later writer on the sublime has reckoned with the full radicalism of it. Well, what's great about Burke is the way, as most of you probably know from having read a fair amount of him, the way he can seize on a particular moment in experience or history and make it stand for something larger. And, and in doing that, he is able to deploy the gifts not only of a historian, and his knowledge of historian was copious to the point where Samuel Johnson didn't want him in the same room when he was holding <laughs> forth, from his knowledge of history and from a kind of insight that feels like intuition, that feels like more than you know the ordinary tracing of motives. There is a passage in his speech on conciliation with the American colonies that I would read just for that quality of taking in particulars, in this case, wailing, and making them matter more. The American proficiency at trade and the arts of trade. No sea, says, but what is vexed by their fisheries. No climate that is not witness to their toils. Neither the perseverance of Holland, nor the activity of France, nor the dexterous and firm sagacity of English enterprise ever carried this most perilous mode of hardy industry to the extent to which it has been pushed by this recent people. How pro-American is that, exactly? <laughs> A people who are still, as it were, but in the gristle and not yet hardened into the bone of manhood. When I contemplate these, and you can see how complex the effect is and how on the verge of parody or satire, I mean, he could go either way. And one of the things he's doing is reassuring members of parliament in this two and a half hour speech on the floor of parliament that the Americans aren't so grown up and developed that they would ever be a real danger to the form of hostility towards you. People who are still, as it were, in the gristle and not yet hardened into the bone of manhood, when I contemplate these things, when I know that the colonies in general owe little or nothing to any care of ours, and that they are not squeezed into this happy form by the constraint of watchful and suspicious government, but that through a wise and salutary neglect, so Americans whose political memory goes back to Daniel Moynihan's catastrophic use of the phrase benign neglect about issues of welfare in the Nixon administration, that's where Daniel Moynihan got the phrase salutary neglect turning into the benign neglect. It's good to have the government stand back when issues are controversial and full of friction. Why did Moynihan know that phrase? Because Burke's speech on conciliation with America from about 1900 to 1950 was required reading and memorizing to some extent in the high schools of some of the cities in our country, including New York. Theodore Draper's another member of that generation who told me you know, what he knew of Burke started with this, being forced to memorize passages. So it led to, well, anyway, such are the accidents of influence. I mean, Moynihan probably met his ironic comment on welfare in a Burkean way, but it was taken as totally reactionary and heartless. Through a wise and salutary neglect, a generous nature has been suffered to take her own way to perfection. When I reflect upon these effects, when I see how profitable they have been to us, I feel all the pride of power sink and all presumption in the wisdom of human contrivance melt and die away within me. My rigor relents. I pardon something to the spirit of liberty. That's a famous passage, and it is high Burkean in its attempt to win people over through a 
what should we call it? I mean, maybe the best word, one he uses often, is magnanimity, large spiritedness, which comes from being strong, but not only towards the weak whom you've conquered, but towards the potential rival who is also strong. He says later in this speech, magnanimity in politics is the truest policy, and a great empire and little minds go ill together. Another and a shorter passage on the Americans. He makes it seem hard to tame or repress them on the ground of national characteristics and geographical ones too. They're 3,000 miles from England. As he says in one place, there is a 3,000 mile parenthesis between every order you dictate to America and every result you can expect. But the inheritance of English liberty is another source of American resistance. And then he names some slightly more out of the way attributes. One of them is the radical Protestantism of the northern colonies, as he calls them. And he coins for that the phrase, the dissidents of dissent. They are the very dissidents, the most compacted essence of radical Protestantism. He means Boston and Connecticut and the, the northeast colonies where we are, pretty much. And then what fortifies the spirit of liberty and makes it more intense in the southern colonies, slavery because slave masters, by the contrast that's constantly before their eyes, have their appetite for liberty even further sharpened and whetted. Think of the knowledge of human nature that leads into that observation. And Burke says, I'm not here to judge in favor of slavery, but this is how it works on people's minds. And a third is the prevalence in America of lawyers. <laughs> and he quotes or paraphrases an observation by the British General Gage that all the people in his government are lawyers or smatterers in law, and that in Boston they have been enabled by successful chicane wholly to evade many parts of one of your penal constitutions. This study renders man acute, inquisitive, dexterous, prompt in attack, ready in defense, full of resources. It's the litigiousness of Americans. He sees it in 1775. In other countries, the people, more simple and of a less mercurial cast, judge of an ill principle in government only by an actual grievance. Here in America, they anticipate the evil and judge of the pressure of the grievance by the badness of the principle. So the lawyers and the political theorists are hard to distinguish from each other. Lawyers deal with contracts, and the political theorists of natural rights deal with a new version of the social compact, and it's a lethal combination for the empire. And he says again, summing up about this state of mind and profession, they augur misgovernment at a distance and snuff the approach of tyranny in every breeze. Burke, toward the end of the period that this book covers, is representative one of the two members of parliament for the second city of Britain at the time, Bristol. That's an important constituency, and to get that seat, it wasn't enough to go to his patron, the Marcus of Rogham, or one of the patron's friends among the grandees of the party. He had to run, and he had to win an election. And this, I think, gave Burke a kind of stature within Britain, and to some extent in America and the provinces of Britain, that enlarged him gave generosity to his ambitions, which couldn't have been there before, and made him the kind of public figure he emerged as being in the 1780s. He's defeated in the election of 1780, so his service as member of parliament for Bristol 
lasts only six years, but I think they are essential years for Burke and some of his greatest writings and insights come from the political engagement he's able to pursue, having a relative independence from his party, even though party loyalty is one of the things he made of highest political concern to him. I would say it is in part a source of what I called Burke's internationalism. I wanted to read a passage from a speech he gave in 1780, just before the election. He was about to step down and then a meeting where there was more warmth towards him encouraged him to go in for a few days. Then he ends up backing down from the poll after all. But in between, he makes this speech previous to the election, 1780, one of his greatest things. And he talks, looking back, about the Gordon riots and the American War in this vein, talking about the activist, non-neglectful, but very violent administrations that had caused the troubles with America and how they had to sue for peace when America became too troublesome and how much of this he had prophesied. This is an improvised speech. This is the way Burke spoke when he hadn't got it written out before. They enter the capital of America only to abandon it. This is the British ambassadors. And these asserters and representatives of the dignity of England at the tail of a flying army let fly their Parthian shafts of memorials and remonstrances at random behind them. Their promises and their offers, their flatteries and their menaces were all despised, and we were saved the disgrace of their formal reception only because the Congress <coughs> scorned to receive them, whilst the State House of Independent Pennsylvania opened her doors to the public entry of the Ambassador of France. From war and blood, we went to submission, and from submission plunged back again to war and blood, to desolate and be desolated without measure, hope, or end. I am a royalist. I blushed for this degradation of the crown. I am a Whig. I blushed for the dishonor of Parliament. I am a true Englishman. I felt to the quick for the disgrace of England. I am a man. I felt for the melancholy reverse of human affairs and the fall of the first power of the world. And he'll say about that time in a related utterance when he is charged by his Irish friends with not having fought hard enough for free trade for Ireland during the midst of these engagements against the American war. It's an amazing phrase. Burke shouldn't have said it, or if he said it, he's not the Burke we thought he was. He says to this Irish correspondent, the sphere of my duties is my true country. So, I mean, there backs off from any little platoon. He backs off from Catholicism, backs away from Irish birth, from his identity as a leading statesman of the British Empire or an advocate of the Americans or anything else. The sphere of my duties is my true country. And I think if you gave that to bright university students on a test in intellectual history and said, who wrote this? You know, Bentham, Mill, Kant, or Burke, almost all of them would say Kant. And that itself is interesting. A closing word about the French Revolution. Why did he do it? <laughs> Why did this most interesting and enlightened of reformers turn that way and try to stop the birth of liberty as most Europeans take it on an even more important front than what took place in America? Part of it, I think, was that he had never hoped for separation by America or for the American spirit of liberty to become a new definition of how things were done in the world. Burke is a defender of aristocratic society, and he knew it was going to start to dissolve under American conditions, but he thought America could be made a special case and kept 
on friendly terms within the empire if they treated it right. Bear in mind also his epigram about being a hater of all violence and innovation, and the thought that the French Revolution involved programmatic innovation on a different scale and perhaps different in kind from anything the Americans did or anticipated. The last thing is that Burke, by the time the French Revolution came into its radical stage, that is when the Third Estate declares itself the nation, Burke by that time had been through the Gordon Riots of 1780, had seen close to home the effects of crowd action, which came close to burning down London in six days of total disorder. And he didn't like it, and he protested against the bringing in of 7,000 yeoman military to keep the peace when the police were not enough. And yet, that made an impression on him. I'm not the only commentator on Burke who thinks this, but my study of him towards finishing this book has convinced me it's a stronger reason than I believed before. And Burke the other thing is, never trusts the ostensible reasons given by people of name and power for great political ventures. He just doesn't believe it. His skepticism and what he knows of human nature won't take him that way. He always is ready to detect or unmask what he calls situations where those who are most stirring in the scene may possibly not be the real movers. Those who are most stirring in the scene may possibly not be the real movers. That's another way of saying Burke took political conspiracy to be an everyday fact of political life. He may have gone too far with it in his attempt to unmask the French Revolution, but there are details in which he's been proved right that no one could have known at the time. But I'll stop here. Thank you, David. Could you say something about Burke's English prose style? I, I see him as a kind of bridge between Samuel Johnson's balance clauses and Hazlitt's kind of more darting, abrupt style. So what do you see as the main features of his style? And then how does he situate himself between Johnson and Hazlitt? Johnson has to be divided into at least two phases also. Three, if you include his speaking, as Boswell records it. The balanced antithetical style you're talking about of, of the rambler or rassless is, is one side of Johnson. Marriage has many pains, celibacy has no pleasures, that kind of thing. And later Johnson, as in the lives of Pope and Milton, is rather short-winded and striking in how quickly and memorably he can say a thing. Some of Hazlitt comes out of that, though he wouldn't have wanted to admit it. And some of what we think of, as I suppose, the better, quicker versions of the Victorian style of wit and moralism. For instance, Thackeray comes out of that side of Johnson. Johnson. I think Hazlitt got a lot out of Burke, and he said so. That's his favorite writer, and that's another example of the antithetical or unexpected influence of Burke's politics through the passion that gets into it on writers who would not be expected to be taking his side. It the work by Burke that Hazlitt took inspiration from at the age of 14 when he read a fragment of it published in a newspaper, is a letter to a noble lord, which is an out-and-out -out attack on the French Revolution, but in the process, an ironic attack on the British aristocracy who are fashionably siding with the French Revolution. And Hazlitt liked that part. The attack on the Duke of Bedford and the fantasy that that essay engages in of the Duke of Bedford's estates being overrun by Jacobins, turned into a chemical factory, the coffins of the family melted down for bullets, and so on. I mean, there is a side of Burke that's not that remote from Swift or Terry Southern. So you could get that indignation from a work whose ostensible motive and direction is anti-revolutionary. I think Hazlitt 
Almost always. Not always. I mean, if you think of his chapter on Coriolanus in characters of Shakespeare's plays, that's pretty Burkean, the way those sentences roll on and the way the denunciation of Shakespeare's partisanship for the aristocracy works. But I think on the whole, Hazlitt has a, it's a modern style. I know that's what you love about it and me too. It's a radically original modern style. Burke doesn't seem like that, but it's hard to place him in a period because he is so various. He has an absolutely two feet on the ground way of narrating history when he wants to. That, which I just read to you, isn't particularly representative in a way. He's often much more pedestrian in a good sense. And that is spoken extempore. When he's writing, he's for the most part averse to purple passages. People have the wrong impression of him in this respect because what they tend to know is bits of the reflections on the revolution in France, and they especially know the passage on the Queen, on the taking of the Queen from Versailles, and I thought 10,000 swords must have leaped from their scabbards to avenge even a look that threatened her with insult, and so on, and how it goes on. But that's not typical Burke. I compare him with two writers in the book. One is Rousseau, and another is Shakespeare. And to handle just the latter, he resembles Shakespeare in having, it seems, the whole diapason of English at his disposal. You just feel there's nothing in English he couldn't do, only it's all prose instead of mostly verse, as in Shakespeare. The other thing, and this almost defeats you if you're trying to, to write on Burke, it's my only legitimate excuse for being at work on this for so long, like Shakespeare, eventually he says everything. That is to say, he sees both sides of a question. And you can make a whole political philosophy out of staging Burke's arguments with himself 10 years apart. And yet, there's a consistency in the knowledge of the passions that all of these observations grow out of that seems to be something you can count on, too. So, long answer. Wendy? This is a more of a personal question, so you might want to answer it or not, as you choose. But I'm wondering, for someone your age, which is my age, when we were first coming to Burke, which is probably college, he was universally seen as a spokesman for conservatism. Yeah. I'm wondering about the moment at which you realized, by reading something of his, if you can remember it specifically, that something else was going on there, that the reformer you speak about, the person with concern for human welfare, how did you break through that brain set that we were given? I have to say, I was starting to read Burke and Hazlitt about the same time, and Hazlitt must have been a help to seeing around the cliches about Burke, because those dismissive ideas about him were there also in the 1810s and 20s when Hazlitt was writing. But I think for me, maybe this will sound like part of the same answer, it was a letter to a noble lord, because it's so powerful and dramatic and personal work. And for someone, you know, as I then was, a young scholar working on romanticism, it seemed to me to belong um, with the generation of Blake and the young Wordsworth more than it belonged to an old man in a defeated way of society to trying to make what he could in its defense. What about it in particular? I think that the passion of its indignation against misuse of him and misuse of people, the sense of injustice that included himself but radiated out from that, seemed to me so much bigger than any idea of this man as a defender of church and state that it, it crashed through it. And from then on, I was inquisitive. I wanted to know how much more of this there was and 
what it was like. I mean, it keeps surprising you. I hadn't read all of the Burke of the later period that I'm studying, but I knew and then forgot in 1789, May 1789, just before he makes a speech on army estimates saying that France should be expunged out of the system of Europe, he makes two speeches for the abolition of the slave trade. I mean, his mind is so roving that there's nothing it doesn't want to catch. And it's cruelty that I think he is most disturbed by, cruelty in any guise at all. And once you see that about him, he becomes quite interesting. And it's even worth mastering some of the politics of the age, which are mostly non-Burkean, to, to get a grip on it. Yes? Perhaps you've just answered my question, but why did he write the work on... It's said to have been begun when he was in college. I don't know that anyone's published a college draft that would be a proof that it had that earliest start. Burke was a thinker, and when he had thoughts, he wanted to speak them or write them down, and he was good at both. I don't, in a way, this is just saying, you know, there are people of such active mind, they can't be suppressed. Why was that his first book of what we would call nonfiction? He didn't always call it nonfiction. There's a story told that the painter James Barry, whom, whose patron Burke became later for a time, and Barry painted Burke with extraordinary imagination. It's better than the Reynolds portraits. It's not quite as affectionate, but the reason it's not is Barry was an angry man, like Burke, his elder, and that's why they fell out. But young Barry came on his knees, having copied out much of the book on the sublime and beautiful, praising Burke for the ideas he found there. And Burke said that the sublime and beautiful was a theoretical romance of no practical importance, whatever. Well, that's late, maybe ironic. But I think he felt he could see what was at the source of some of the strongest human emotions. And that sympathy came from wanting to be close to a scene of suffering, but not in it. And that we were almost morally indifferent whether the suffering was just or unjust in that original reaction. So it includes a non-moral understanding of the roots of human nature. Not that we want to dominate people, and not that benevolence is so strong in us. Burke makes out for the prime motive of human beings, the most irreducible one, curiosity. Curiosity. Wanting to get a little closer. Wanting to get in. And I think if you'd follow that train of thought with lots of observations on the texture of nature, such as we find appealing, or of works of art, and you had that in your mind in your mid-20s, you'd write it down. It's a short book. It pretends to be a little more systematic than it is, but I think he wrote it because he thought he could see a truth which was worth tracking, and much in the mood of Hume in his early writings, too. Yes? Burke contrasts the, the rights of Englishmen to, to the rights of men in, in, in talking about the French Revolution. And it seems to me it's very important in, in Burke to get uh, some notion of a people, what a people is, or what, or, or a nation, and there may be some differentiation between a people and a nation. And I wondered if you could say a few words about that. He speaks of the common, the united sentiments of Englishmen. We are a sullen, sluggish people, averse to change, etc. We know that there are no discoveries to be made in morality. He says things like that on the authority of himself, speaking for English feelings generally. Extraordinary. But... I don't remember him speaking of the rights of Englishmen in any uh, unusual sense, except what would be understood 
going back to well, the Great Charter. Rhetorically, I, yeah. mean, I think it's, it's possible to speak of the rights of Englishmen in a sense that it is not possible to speak of the rights of men in general. Burke certainly thinks that people are divided into nations and that the kind of reform possible in a nation needs to be considered closely against the background of what has already happened there. Certainly, one of the fallacies he believed of the French Revolution, he doesn't say it quite outright, but he says it almost in a letter, is that the French are not ready for liberty, whereas the English have gotten there more slowly and on the whole are ready for it. And what he finds damnable is that the French have gotten their theoretical ideas of liberty from John Locke and other English sources. They just so much got lost instead of gained in the translation. And he compares it to liquors being transported across the channel and losing them. I mean, but that doesn't go with any deeper theory of people being divided into cultures as if cultures had some of the primary pigment of identity. I don't think Burke is that kind of communitarian. There are writers of real stature on history political theory who would disagree. Isaiah Berlin was one. But I think that that territory, which I would associate more with de Maistre, isn't Burke, and that Burke in that respect belongs more to the high enlightenment where the thought is of human nature and even of human rights, but human rights developing along a path that can avoid somehow the evils of innovation and violence. So he would say of the English, we're lucky, but the kind of rights I identify as belonging to us, the right to the fruits of your industry, the right to consolation and death and so on, should belong eventually to everyone. But he wasn't therefore in favor of revolutionizing societies that hadn't yet got there. And in that respect, he is much more conservative than almost all the leaders of American politics now, who are descendants in that respect of the French Revolution, not the glorious revolution of 1688. David, two, two things among others always struck me about the reflections. One is how early it was written. It was written. It came out in 1790, and it's written as if the terror had already occurred. In other words, you know... As if Stalin's terror had already exactly, occurred. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, and maybe related to that, is that Burke's ability to generalize from the particular. In other words, why is it a fountainhead of modern conservatism right here wrongly? Because he took those incidents and those events, he got a whiff of the English support for the revolution among the corresponding societies. Yeah. And he, he he shot he worked it into a theory of society. Yeah. Well, there we get to the deep. We could call it anti-theoretical. I just want to remind people that theory didn't always mean an overarching theory that takes in everything. Burke says at the beginning of the sublime and beautiful, a theory is good for exactly so much as it can prove our inability to push it indefinitely is nothing against it. He was against people who in the political realm wanted to push a theory indefinitely. And that's his bias against the French Revolution and the extent to which the French Revolution is composed of leaders who believed in natural society along the lines of Rousseau and who thought all mankind was bent on one path and that it could be formalized in political organizations such as are laid out in Rousseau's. Burke doesn't like that and he thinks that the coming together of what he calls the political men of letters, the ideologists, and opportunistic politicians, and the crowd in the streets. Those three elements coming together in the French Revolution, and particularly the clubs, the Cordelier, the Jacobin Club, and so on, 
that the politicians are taking their orders from the atmosphere of these clubs, that this is a democratic disease that is going to destroy liberty. Democracy is going to destroy liberty. That's the fear. And I guess I'm describing it sympathetically enough to show that I think there was something to it, and he did see deeply into the possibilities of the time as early as mid-1789. He wasn't against radical reform in France as such. He says in the Reflections, it's one of the many sentences you stop at after reading the book three, four, five times. That's in here, where he says, you have all the necessary elements for a good reform when the estates were called together again. Well, he means May 1789. He means the revolution was on a good path until May 1789. Where it went wrong was where one estate, the Tiretta, declared itself the nation and said that we're going to be able to outvote everyone else. At that point, democratic despotism becomes possible. But democratic despotism pursued by people who say they're working for democracy, but they are not the people. They're the third estate. So he sees all the tendencies there, and I think he sees them early, partly out of fear and partly out of a sort of tenderness for the vulnerability of human nature. The idea that ideas generated, excogitated by the brain, can so dominate people that they forget the human application of them. So you get a sentence which compresses the logic of this perception in a letter to a noble lord that says, they, so speaking of the Jacobins, their humanity is always at the horizon, and like the horizon, it always retreats before them. So that's the idea of a utopia that may need millions of deaths in order to last hundreds of years. That, that or, or think Russia, or China, or any country that wants to impose itself to that extent. And Burke has that fear because he's imaginative. I mean, I, I think that fear is there in Macbeth and King Lear, but it's not written out as a political prophecy. So I guess in two words, the reason why he could see so much so early would be fear and imagination. Um, thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.